Um, no, that's amazing. No, so uh, depending on uh, how uh, this may be, maybe the last week we're on the last chapter, and then there's a little epilogue. So we basically went through the entire cipher, um, starting, uh, you know, starting from defining our role here as uh, as the Shiftei Yishurun, going through our perspectives, practical advice, and uh, how we're supposed to learn, and you know, all the, all the different things that, are, that have been Torah for life, and as someone who's no longer in the case of Spanish, no longer Shevet Levi, should know. Uh, his final chapter is called What Happened? And it's, it's, a, common, uh, it's a common thing that, that uh, different writers and Gedalim have done, like, uh, you know, Shamshin of Falhirsh, you know, in his famous, in his 18th letter, he tries to explain what happened, you know, how did it happen that overnight, you know, uh, most of Germany became fry. You know, the Maral has a letter, uh, in, not a letter, in, uh, I think, Perk Nunches and Tveras Yisrael, where he explains, what, you know, what happened? Why, why you know, we're always, uh, like in the Scott New Adaris, we're always looking back, you know, how did things deteriorate? So uh, he asked this question here, right? Lately, we've heard far too often about people who went to yeshiva, learned in Kailo, were upstanding members of from communities, and then one fine morning, they told their families, their wives, that they no longer believe, right? They're no longer observant. Some of them stay part of the community, right? They're the, the orthoprax, they call them, but, you know, so, you know and uh, some want to break away totally, run off to a new life, and then get interviewed by David Bashevkin, right? As if uh, this was some dread disease spreading throughout our community, we begin to worry. Like, are we next? Like, uh, you know, what's going on over here? Like, uh, can I wake up tomorrow and become an apikyrus, right? So he says, like most phenomena in our world, we're long on anecdotes, amazingly loquacious in analysis, and woefully short on facts. Right? That's just a general, you know, when the people, this is the, you know, like I, I went to, I, I, during Corona, I had like started this little parody uh, Late Sunnah's website. You know, I was like bored. I, I, uh, I call it the Onion Kichel. I think it's. I don't think it's a, a friend of mine bought the domain and I think it went down. But like, I wrote the. Um, I wrote a headline that some lady says, you know, with the beginning of COVID, we're, we're living in, un- it's never happened before in history, you know, the lady says, and she's going to, you know, take her spare time off now to read a history book, you know, like, uh, you know, it's like, this is, it never happened before, this is the worst time in history, you know, we're very, and like, uh, you know, if Iron one time said, you know, there were, there was a few, a few tragedies that happened, and like, they quoted from Chaim Kanievsky, everyone has to say, Kippur Katan, you know, and he was like, you know, there's halachas about what makes, what's considered a dever, what's considered a plague, and how many people, right? You know, we talk about there's more divorces now than ever before in history, or there's more this, there's more that. You know, we're very, very low on statistics. We're not looking at it intelligently. We have to know how to look at things. It's not just, you know, we have a lot of anecdotes and we have headlines, and nowadays everything gets spread so quickly that, like, we, we may think that things are happening more often and are at a higher percentage than ever before. And, you know, we have to just be very, very careful about, you know, you know, oh, this is, this is, you know, the Mamash, millions of people. It's like, all right, just take it easy. We're, we're living in a very, very large community. And percentage-wise, these things tend to be a lot less than we actually think. It's just that these things are make the headlines, and so you think it's a lot more common. All right. Because so many of these people quote Kfira that they picked up from the internet, you know? So people are like, oh, the internet's the problem, you know, because they're quoting uh, the internet people, right? Again, the internet is a facilitator, not the initiator of the process. He says, well, we all have a deep core of Amunan and Anishamas, Right? Most of what we're conscious of follows a different pattern. Right? We all have Muna, right? Ultimately, we follow the way we were brought up. We follow our parents and our teachers lead. Yes, you can persuade a teenager, but ultimately, almost everyone is going to resort back to the way he was brought up. Um, and you know, very, very rarely does an adult find the truth. Right? You always wonder, like, you know, 
you know, why, 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 why doesn't this Christian just get it? I could, you know, any two-year-old could show him the Pasuk and Chumash that shows him that his whole life is wrong, right? Well, come on, just listen to my, if I have like the guy gives a drush and he's convinced that like, this is going to like, the guy's going to hear this vart and tomorrow is going to be like Mashiach's going to come because everyone's, it's not like that. Most people, you have your status quo, you have your certain assumptions and then yes, you can try to grow and change, but ultimately, you know, so this idea that somehow you're going to just leave, you know, you read something on the internet or, you know, and then you're going to become an apicurus is, is very, very unusual. He says people leave for two reasons. Page 196. So the less frequent reason is that they have pent up anger or rage. Someone abused them, dealt with them dishonestly. Someone misled them, rejected them, belittled them, embarrassed them. So there's anger and it's pent up. And, you know, eventually it bubbles to the surface and the Yiddishkeit falls apart. It's an act of revenge against the rabbis who didn't believe him when he cried about his abuse. And then not minimizing this. The parents or teachers who told him he was worthless. The ultra from business partner who cheated his father out of money. The school that didn't accept his children because he's too modern. And etc. etc. And he just points out the irony that like very often, you know, it's like it becomes like a self-fulfilling thing, right? It's like, you know, the guy who doesn't get accepted to school gets treated like a piece of direct by the administrators. And so he, Mamish becomes like more modern. Like, oh, you see, that's why we didn't take him in, right? You know, where his parents are like, oh, yeah, this guy's a low life. Look at him. Look how he turned out. You know, so again, but again, so this is something, the core of the issue at hand is that the person has acted out of spite rather than reason. Right? This wasn't like some, you know, he was angry and, and he acted out of spite. This is destructive, right? It's, again, he's hurting himself more than everyone else. Right? When a person destroys his life like that, destroys Tyra, right? He's hurting himself. Right? It's not great for the family and friends either, but he's ultimately destroying himself and he's doing it out of anger or rage. If a person has pent up rage, he needs to find help in working it through and harnessing it constructively. Destroying yourself is too heavy a price to pay for the perceived satisfaction of avenging yourself against the antagonist. Like, you know, it's like a little kid has it, right? When, when, when your four-year-old kid is mad at you, he throws off his yarmulke, right? Because he knows that, you know, you really want him to wear his yarmulke, right? Throws off, and he says like, and he says like, you know, his like dirty words that he knows, you know, his like uh, bathroom words, right? It's 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 anger, and you're lashing out, and again, it's uh, yeah, we understand it. Sometimes these are very very traumatic things, and there's a tremendous breach of trust. But that's not something which is, you know, a person that's dealing with those issues should take care of it for your own health, you know, for your own mental health and your own well-being and future more than anything else. To live anger and to make decisions based on this anger is not healthy. And so uh, that's just uh, good advice that a person should, should figure out how to deal with it. The second and more common reason is almost the opposite. So he says, imagine a big tree firmly planted in the ground. One day it suddenly comes crashing down, right? You have this big, beautiful tree and just boom, right? It turns out that the tree died a long time ago. For a very long time, it stayed firmly in the ground because of inertia, right? It was there and it doesn't just fall. Even though the inner sap had dried out, the husk of the tree stood where it always had been, held down by roots that were dead. Slowly as the tree died out, it became more and more brittle, more and more prone to breaking. Worms and diseases lashed onto this carcass of a tree and slowly nibbled away. The roots loosened their grip and the small cracks worked their way through the wood. Then one day, a light wind brushes against the tree and it comes crashing down, right? So you can have a tree standing there and it's a big, beautiful tree, it looks wonderful, but the tree is really dead and it was dead the whole time. This analogy describes the most common process that leads to the tragedy of an adult leaving Yiddishkeit. It's not an explosion of anger, but it's a slowly dying process, right? Let's look at this person's history. We see a person going through the system, following the rules, but never really feeling inspired. The learning never really thrilled him. Davening never moved him. The schmoozing never motivated him. Maybe when you were a young teenager, you had those moments where like, you know, everything was great. But by the time you were an adult, Okay, you're already as cynical as I am. You remain observant because that's the way you are. You're the tree, you're sitting there, right? But your inner religious world has dried out. That's it, you're a dead tree. You look, everything looks wonderful, but inside you're dead. 
And so what happens? And you have the light breeze. One day someone takes you to a bar, a casino, a club. It's fun. Slowly he finds Hevra. They're also nice uh, secular Jews or non-Jews. And now you have a double life. And now, you know, you find the blogs. And then you have the Amunah problems. You ask your Rav. And the Rav doesn't know. And, uh, uh, and one day, oh, okay, I'm fry and that's it, you know. So in other words, it's, it's not, was it the internet? Was it going to the club once that caused it? No, I mean, that was the wind. The wind, ultimately, this was a dead shell of a tree, right? And, you know, then he announces, oh, I've seen the light and I'm departing Yiddishkeit and everyone's, everyone's trying to figure out. Uh, we have to teach Emunah and Yeshivas, right? Again, I'm not getting into that, uh, that debate, you know. But again, if we're worried about this phenomenon and if, we're beginning to, and, and if we're beginning to hear and see more of this type of story, we must focus on the first piece of the process. It's not what happened then. It's <laughs> earlier, the drying up of the inner sap. What happened that this person was dead inside? Reb Shach, voicing his foreboding about the spiritual future of Eretz Yisrael, he would say the following. It was quoted, he says, in the, in the Ated. He said, Russia once had a very strong Jewish community. Right? Russia, Litta. Litta was Russia. That's, you know, those, those are the, that, that's where all the Litta, right? There were strong lay leaders, schools and yeshivas. There were many Tamid Chachamim and Vidalim. Every shul had many shirim in the morning and night. You have no idea how a pre-World War I Jew looked suffused with Tyra and Yerushalayim, right? Read the history of the shtetl before World War I. You know, it was mamish, you know, it was, it was mamish like the fiddler on the roof, you know, before everything went, uh, you know, fell apart, right? So what happened? I'm fearful. I'm, he says, I'm afraid. I'm afraid that this is going to happen again. I remember sitting with my uncle, Mr. Zaman, learning in a shtibel on the second floor of a building. He says, and Yidin, who until the day before were davening together with us, came to pursue us, they had to jump off the second floor just to escape them, right? You had the communists that came and all the seculars, right? These guys, yesterday we were davening together and the next day they're being right of us. Do you ever think, how did our skull in Europe succeed in toppling so many households like a stack of cards? The Jews are such a, a right? They're so stubborn. And all of a sudden the Ascala comes in and one day everyone just throws it all away. So I'll tell you, there were indeed Jewish homes with Yiddishkeit, but it was a Yiddishkeit of habit, practiced by rote, right? Mitzvahs and Asher Lamada. Jews were observing the mitzvahs, but those mitzvahs were, preser- were performed with no feeling. Yiddishkeit is so beautiful, so rich. The life of an observant Jew is a, song, life, is a life of song, a song that's pleasant and uplifting. And yet Yiddishkeit became just rote with no sense of being uplifted, no divine spirit. And these houses collapsed overnight and we must begin the slow and painful process of reconstruction. Right? Again, we have literally empty shells of a Yiddishkeit. And, uh, and that's what happened. As soon as the wind, that little wind of Ascala blew, it all fell apart. So again, if we can sum up our points from the previous chapters, it's to live a life that lives Torah. Torah's chayin doesn't only mean a Torah about living, but a living Torah. Our self-examination should not focus merely on the mechanics of observance. Yes, we have to focus on, are we doing the halacha? Are we doing things right? That's very important. But more than anything else, it should examine the quality of neshama that we have infused in our observance. What is the, well, we're doing the mitzvah. That's important. That's step one. Absolutely, objectively important. But step two is, are we infusing that mitzvah? Are we infusing our life with a neshama? Right? Rav Shem Avobi says this, uh, I saw it a few times, he says that the, uh, it, it says that the, the Kayasel, right? Kefela Harimain Rakasech, right? That the, your empty ones are like a, are like a pomegranate. Mara says that Afilu Rekanim Shevacha, even the empty ones in Kayasel are Malayan Mitzvahs Karimain, are filled with Mitzvahs like a Rimain. The Paisha Yisrael, they're filled, right? So Rabshem Avi says, I don't understand. A pomegranate is completely filled with seeds, right? So if it's filled with seeds like a Rimain, then what more do you want? Well, what are the Tzadikim? If this is what the Risham look like, then. We're calling them empty, right? What is going on over here, right? They're full of mitzvahs. They can't possibly do any more mitzvahs. The answer is, it's not about the quantity, it's about the quality, right? And that the person just does a mitzvah and just like does it. It's just, yeah, it's full. Ultimately, he has a, a pomegranate full of seeds, but those seeds are nothing. Those seeds are, are, are tasteless, those seeds are dry, right? The idea of, of once you do the mitzvahs, 
understanding that we need to now infuse those mitzvahs. And that, that's part of our self-examination. Right? The one lesson of this book is, is to think, to make time to think and examine and to, and to, and to constantly, constantly rethink and constantly and, you know, to perform analysis on your life. Don't only think of, am I doing the right thing or wrong thing? Think about, am I, am I davening? Yes. But how is my davening? Am I, is that davening doing anything for me? Is it a meaningful religious experience? Right? I, I'm doing mitzvahs. Yes, I'm keeping, I'm learning my Vesedur and Hilcha Shabbos by the meal. I'm learning Hilcha Shabbos. But what does my Shabbos look like? Right? Because again, if you're just spending your whole Shabbos forcing yourself not to do everything that the uh, Simcha Budim Kohn writes in his book, uh, you know, that, uh, that, that's a short term. That, that's not going to work. It's all you're going to, it's going to crack. Right? Are you infusing in a Shabbos? Our job of chinuch will be so different if we succeed in doing so. A child naturally desires the things that his parents genuinely hold to be desirable. If there's something that you like, your kids pick up on it. If it's important to you, your kids will pick up on that. They sense our excitement and pleasure and gravitate instinctively towards it. So again, when, 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 when Yiddishkeit is just being performed by force or by rote, this is what you have to do. Very makbid on the halacha. That's a very important first step. And I, you know, I always say like, you know, after the Holocaust, like there's like a rebuilding observance in America, right? There's certain things that we took for granted, levels of observance that were low, and we built, and we sent everyone to yeshiva, and we were very busy, right? But, but like, did we invest in the actual, you know, neshama? I mean, we always took it for granted, right? We have, we have yeshiva, was so successful, we have everyone going to yeshiva, and we have yeshiva bachim, learning all these hours a day, but like, we almost took for granted that the neshama was there, and then maybe it's not, and then, uh, you know, slowly these things erode. So Baruch Hashem, we, we, we have a place like this, we have other places that, you know, are inspiring people, that are trying to infuse meaning into people, and each, everyone according to their own way, whether it's Musr, whether Hasidus, whether it's Machshava, whatever the way is, but that's the essential, because, because otherwise you're going to be a beautiful tree, but inside is empty, and the wind could come and blow it. Um, right, let's, just, let's just finish up his epilogue here. If you remember his prologue, he, he discussed this Yaakov, right, this... Uh, this, um, this, this, you know, this guy who is leaving yeshiva for the last day, going out to work, and he's torn. Is he abandoning yeshiva? Is he a failure? Right? And he's, he's having these mixed feelings, and that's what he wrote this book for. So now he finishes up. Yaakov sat a, sat a, long, time, uh, uh, sat a long time lost in thought. And then he sat up with a standing renovation. I'm not, I have not been rejected. I have been deployed. Right? In the army, everyone goes for, basic, for, for boot camp. Right? Everyone goes for the same basic training. Everyone. Right? And then, some people are off to intelligence, some people are off to, to fight in the military. Right? Everyone goes to their different areas. Right? So, so the people that are in yeshiva, they're staying in, in military school and they're studying strategy. But the whole military ultimately is all about the battlefield. Right? That's where it's all at. A person, a yid, right? Yes, everyone has that basic training. Everyone goes to yeshiva, gets their, their, their basic training and inspiration, their shavit levi years. But then he's going out to the battlefield. And the person in the battlefield is actually executing everything that, uh, that you learned and that everyone's learning. Life is a big base medrash, and for the person who focuses his ears, it's Hashem delivering the shir all day, every day. Right? The one who sits in base medrash knows more halachas and machshavas about emes. But the one on the battlefield of life, who turned down a lucrative deal, even though everyone made fun of him because it was dishonest, he knows emes in a way that no one else can know. He has not only seen and heard about emes, he has smelled and tasted it and held it in enduring embrace. The milk, the general sitting there writing all the strategies, you know what I mean? Uh, if, if you're not actually, <laughs> then you're actually in the field. That's the reality, right? This is the reality on the field. It's a whole different ballgame. Wrestling himself awake day in, day out to learn B'Kfiyas. He says, with the energy of life that terror infuses in him, the way that only a person on an oxygen tank can thank Hashem every day for his breath. But Rebbe Rechaim Shalemus used to explain the phrase of the Rashbam. He says, right, What does that mean? He says, every day in one's life reveals newer insights into life. And this is what Rav Hirsch says, that's the Pshat of the Mishnah, Because everyone has a different story, 
right? And Torah is, is there's new insights in everyone's life that no one else has. In your industry, in your situation in life, there are insights about life that no one else can have. And certainly in our own lives, every day is that shear from the Rebbein Shalom. Every day the Rebbein Shalom is giving shear, and you're sitting and listening and acting it out. Yaakov realized that he's waiting a lifetime of struggles where the ultimate success is not measured by perfection, but by perseverance, despite the setbacks and hits, and on the glorious day when he'll make it through, clothes torn and mud spattered, but just the same emerging triumphant, he not only will have earned his medal of honor, but most important of all, he'll have become the person HaKadosh Baruch Hu envisioned and chose him to be. And Hashem doesn't want you to do this, Hashem doesn't want you to do this, Hashem wants you. Yaakov straightened up, and began leaving with an upbeat gait. He was not closing his Gemara, he was opening a different Mesechta in a new base of Medrash. Yisrael Asher Bacha Esbar.